the only daily Premier League podcast. This is Football Social Daily. Hello, hello, hello and happy Wednesday and welcome to the middle of the week. And it's the news that most of you, if not all of you, have been waiting for. Yes, congratulations, take a breath. The international break is over. Yep, that's it. Well, for another month at least, as the day job of the Premier League kicks back into action this weekend. And with the latest round of World Cup qualifiers wrapping itself up, we'll be looking back to last night as it was a frustrating evening for England. Gareth Southgate's side found themselves on the wrong end of a one-all Wembley draw with Hungary. Now, they're still on course for Qatar, but things have become a little bit trickier that's all to come in part one of the show and then in part two we'll be getting in touch with the Premier League some worrying injury news coming out of Manchester United with Raphael Varane joining Harry Maguire on the treatment table and as expected there's going to be some Newcastle chat and poor old Steve Bruce as we check out the latest runners and riders that are probably going to be taking his job at St James's Park sometime in the near future Right then, my name's Fergal Brennan. Let's get ourselves started. Joining me today, we have, as always, Mr. Wednesday, Ian Brannan. Ian, how's things? I'm good, thanks. Yes, um, I've, uh, I keep saying Mr. Wednesday. Why do I call him Mr. Wednesday? I, I have two, count them, two podcasts going live this week on the Sports Social Podcast Network. Um, and uh, yeah, it's a big week because Humans of Speedway is back and Jim will be delighted with this news. Well, I am very delighted with this news. Ex- ex- thrilled, excited, over the moon. <laughs> And that that voice that voice that I'm sure you'll all recognise is uh, is the boss man Jim Salverson. Jim, how are you doing? All right, I'm still trying to work out how you can be on the wrong end of a one-one draw, but <laughs> I'm sure by not winning it, that's how you can be on the wrong end. By not winning, by not winning it when you're expected to win both, it, that's both how you're ends of a one-one draw are the same though. It's, it's like there isn't a wrong end or a right end. It's identical. That, do you know what? Listen, Matt has never been my strong point. <laughs> uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna gratefully admit that I might have overegged that one uh, a little bit. Right, before we get into the game and who was on the right and the wrong end of a, of a one-all draw, Ian, events off the pitch were also one of the big takeaways from last night. The hungry fans at Wembley. Very disgraceful, disappointing scenes. Fighting with police, there was arrests made, there was a number of stewards and police who'd been reported as being attacked. And this is the second hungry game uh, so far this season where there's been incidents involving their supporters, security staff, police, obviously the incidents in, in Budapest, which were, were disgusting, racist chanting, missiles being thrown onto the pitch. We had you on the podcast a couple of weeks ago when their fine and, uh, and ban was confirmed on the back of that. This is another pretty horrendous incident. Do you expect UEFA to make any sort of an increased movement or, or any movement at all? No, probably not because the, they've. <laughs> how many times does this happen? It's like it, it, what has to happen before they get kicked out? Of one of these tournaments, you know, uh, some we, we've we've said before that banning fans clearly isn't working because they're still there, <laughs> you know. They haven't. Ban- why are they allowed? If if they're banned, why are they allowed to go to the away matches as well? Do you know what? It doesn't matter because whatever fans are allowed in the stadium, they'll find a way. There'll always be one or two that'll get through, you know, buy an England ticket and then kick off once they get in there. But the only way to 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 deal with it is to get rid of Hungary from the tournament until. 
things perhaps change, but I don't think they will change because they're so far behind in terms of their thinking and, and how they operate that um, it's not something that's going to happen overnight. Um, and they came for a fight they came because they had their uh, placards all ready for, for the kneeling bit at the start, and it was right at the beginning of the game when this all kicked off. Um, it kicked off apparently because they were racially abusing a steward, um, which then the police came in, and the police came in, and that was like a little bit more excitement for them. And so... You know, they all started kicking off, and yeah, it's ridiculous. We shouldn't be seeing these scenes. If football is going to pitch itself as a family sport, which um, you know it occasionally does, but I, I don't think I'd take any young kids to a football match. Got to be honest. Um, even without the racist chanting going on, it's it's not a very nice atmosphere. Full stop. People effing and jeffing at every match you you go to in football. And I don't know what it is at football. It doesn't happen at tennis. You know what I mean? It's just football, um, and 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 the way that people behave. And um, yeah, sad to see, and, and and a rubbish advertisement for for England as a footballing nation, you know, to see this at our national stadium, our police fighting with fans and all this kind of stuff. It's not a good look. Whoever's involved and whoever started it, but usually, as we know, hungry are the people starting it, and uh, yet they're allowed to carry on in these tournaments. Un. Uh, a fine is all they get. They need points deductions. They need to be kicked out of tournaments. That's the only way they're going to learn, isn't it? And they're not learning. Nothing's changing. I think that's it. I, th- I think you're right. I think they need to be kicked out because the warnings, the shots across the bow aren't working at the moment for Hungary. And we know, as you say, UEFA banned them or made them play two games behind closed doors because of how they behaved in the Euros. FIFA have been a little bit slower on the update. I think they were warned after the prior England game and surely this is the action that's going to tip them over the edge and there will be some kind of behind closed doors game put into action for the next home game but it's just not working it's not having an impact so the only thing you have left to do as a governing body is to take that nation out of the tournament not let them play in the World Cup not let them play in the Euros because there needs to be a harder line on this and it's as simple as that there needs to be some action taken that is a warning to other nations and other racists or homophobes or whatever it is the abuse that's being levelled at players and stewards in this case which is even more ridiculous it's just a bloke going about doing his job getting probably minimum wage to stand by the edge of a pitch there, need, there needs to be action taken, there needs to be hard action, and it's up to FIFA and UEFA to do that, but Ian's right, they won't do it. It just won't happen. But going back to like the 1980s or, or whatever, when, when we were the, the, the leaders of um, violence in, in football grounds around Europe uh, as a nation, we know our teams were banned from, I mean, this is domestic, uh, well, not, not, you know what I mean, league football, uh, Liverpool or Man United or whatever, were banned from, from qualifying for, for the European Cup as it was then. Um, because of the behaviour of our fans. Why is this not happening now with nations? It, it, it has happened before. We've been kicked out. We were the nation that weren't allowed to partake in these kind of things because we were sending nutters all over the, all over Europe having fights. And it, and it ended in disaster in a couple of occasions, of course. Um, and, you know, there's nothing to say that it won't end in disaster in one of these occasions as well. It's about the safety of people there's, as well as the, the message about racism and and all that kind of side of it of course which is disgusting and they went to protest about the the whole kneeling and uh, black lives matters um uh, uh gestures and things like that 
but you know, there's there's danger here for other people. Who's to say that you know bad things won't happen? You know, even to a policeman, a steward. You know, it's just it's just a volatile thing to have around a football ground that we don't need it at all. And just kick them out. We should say as well. I'm beginning to feel like a bit of a broken record on this, but this isn't just an issue with Hungarian fans and the nation of Hungary. This is a footballing issue and it feels like we're taking steps back in terms of the tolerance of football fans and their behaviour towards minorities, I guess, because it is, in general, it is racist behaviour that seems to be the issue. Uh, These Hungarian fans, I believe they were all UK-based rather than travelling from the continent, which doesn't really make a difference to what happened, but it does put some perspective on the fact that as a country we need to get our own house in order and we need to look at the way that we allow football fans to behave in our stadiums, in our grounds, because we've seen this similar stuff happening at Premier League games. We've seen racist abuse. We've seen people booing the taking of the knee. And it's all very well to like look at these particularly Eastern European countries and go, oh, isn't it terrible and tut loudly and shake our heads, but actually we need to address it on our doorstep and lead by example. So yeah, FIFA and UEFA do need to take action. They need to do something with the likes of Hungary who are repeat offenders. But at the same time, we do need to address it in our own stadiums and in our own country. And that is partly to do with what the Premier League do and things like the the, um, the, the the Black Lives Matter taking the knee. That kind of initiative does help, I believe. But at the same time, it's up to us individually going to football grounds to call out people who are hurling abuse, standing a couple of, pe- couple of rows away from us and to call that out within the stadiums. And it's, there's an element of self-policing. So we do need to sort it out, but we need to sort it out as an individual, as a country, as well as looking further afield and going, why is this happening in other nations? Yeah, I agree. And I think the kind of, as Jim says, rightly so, this passing of the book doesn't really uh, necessarily solve the problem at source. But ugly scenes at Wembley, hopefully, although I do agree with Ian that there's probably unlikely anything UEFA do, hopefully there will be some sort of firm intervention. Right, Jim, looking at events on the pitch last night for uh, England, one all, as you mentioned at the top of the show, against um, Hungary. That means that World Cup qualification is not yet assured. That's going to roll over into the November window when it is Albania and San Marino. On the back of the Andorra game, as expected, some of the big guns rolled back in. Eight changes from the starting eleven that beat Andorra uh, at the weekend. And Gareth Southgate went with a bit more of an attacking-focused lineup, looking at the structure of his midfield. Declan Rice sitting as a single holder with Phil Foden and Mason Mount either side of him. Sterling, Kane and Grealish in what's a fairly exciting attacking lineup. And Southgate himself said at full time that it was a disappointing result. Obviously, events off the pitch have, have made a, an impact on that. But he felt that England played well, but didn't really make enough of their chances. He said they were hurried in the early stages of the game, jumping into tackles, making wrong decisions. And when you look at this type of a team, and yes, it is only qualifying, and there is still stacks of talent in this. Does this maybe hint that more of an attacking front foot front foot approach doesn't necessarily sit? particularly well with Southgate when he's he's built a lot of the good work that he's done with England around a pretty pragmatic approach. This reminds me a little bit of Jose Mourinho at Manchester United when the fans were calling on him to play more attacking football for months and he was kind of be, playing his normal park the bus-esque pragmatic football and then he had a couple of games where he went all in and he played attacking football and they got absolutely hammered. 
And he was like, well, that proves it. I don't have to do it anymore. So uh, it kind of like reminds me of that a little bit. But I think it's a case of like, let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater because England do need a plan B. And I think this was Gareth Southgate exercising a plan B. But you look at the Euros and we know the success of that tournament was pragmatic football. It was that what's it, double pivots, the term, isn't it? Of Phillips and Rice kind of in that holding midfield role. And that was the basis from which England built their success. And that partnership was absolutely brilliant in the Euros. Now, Phillips wasn't available for this game because he was out of the squad via injury. So they needed to try something else. And it was either you play Bellingham, I don't think Bellingham even made the squad, or you play uh, Jordan Henderson alongside Rice, or you change it completely. And England have a embarrassment of riches at the moment where it comes to attacking football. You've got the likes of Grealish and Foden and Harry Kane and... Saka and Raheem Sterling. You've got a lot of very talented attacking players to fit into that squad. So I thought it was quite good to see Gareth Southgate trying something else and trying to fit that talent into a lineup. And it didn't quite work. But at the same time, if you're trying something new, you need to allow players to adapt to that. And these England players don't spend much time playing as a unit, as any international football squad does. They've been playing a completely different way previously to this so you kind of need to allow a little bit of time for it to bed in and players to understand the system and I think last night was just a bad day at the races it was just a little bit dull I think there were too many players off the pace maybe there was a touch of complacency coming off the back of the 4-0 victory in the away leg so it just didn't quite happen but there were there were signs there that there is potential to play the attacking players together. I thought Phil Foden was excellent. I think Jack Grealish was probably the bright spark for England. And if you want to play those two players together, there has to be a slight shift in system, a slight shift in formation. So I don't mind that Gareth Southgate tried it. And at the end of the day, we there were, I mean, four points needed from two relatively easy games in the remainder of the qualifying. So England will make it to the World Cup. So it's far from being a disaster. When you look at the result from last night, Ian, and as Jim rightly points out, this idea that there shouldn't be a panic of it didn't work or, quote, didn't work last night against Hungary, so that's it, don't try it again, don't try anything too risky, that will inevitably maybe come from, from some sections of fans and some sections of the media, but Southgate has proven that he, he is his own man, he makes his own decisions, and there were so many calls in the Euros where England fans were probably screaming at the TV with players who started and players that were left on the bench, and generally speaking, the overwhelming majority of decisions he gets right. Do you still think this should just be, as Jim said, filed under bad day at the office, tried something maybe a little bit more adventurous, didn't completely work, but there's still plenty of time and plenty of scope between now and Qatar to, to try something try something again? Yeah, I think, as, as Jim said, you know, England need a plan B because we don't know what's going to happen. It's all very well, you know, playing in, in in one certain way and then some of those players not being available come a big tournament and going, oh, what we're going to do? So it's good, uh, a pretty good match. You know, it, it, Hungary are not... Um, the best team in the world, but neither are they the worst. They provide a, a reasonable test. Um, but I think it has kind of shown that maybe Gareth Southgate does actually know what he's on about. Um, and of, of course he does, because 
you know, there was a lot of um, to, well, like gum sucking going on. Oh, I don't know about that midfield, you know, when it came round to the last tournament. And, and it actually worked, didn't it? And so um, we, we know what what his preferred option is. We know that it, it provides stability and it provides that safety net for the attacking players to, to go forward. And I think what happened last night was when you've got so many creative players playing together that things come a little bit unstuck, a little bit unbalanced in the side. Um, and so, yeah, I don't think that the side we saw last night is is an indication of the, the team that will start the next World Cup. I don't think that's the case at all. But I think, you know, it is a, it is a plan B. Um, I think that, um, well, from reading the, the comments from Gareth Southgate, he doesn't think that the plan was bad. Um, he just thought the team just didn't play very well last night in general. There wasn't enough intensity. You know, it was kind of like a five out of ten performance, wasn't it? It, you know they, they weren't really up for it for for some reason um interesting to see how they'd be up for it if it was a competitive match and you know there was more riding on it maybe but yeah just they just weren't on it um i don't think that's a gareth southgate thing necessarily that's just the players i don't necessarily think the formation that we saw in the euros is a particularly negative formation either i think we've talked before about Calvin Phillips and Rice playing together and the range of passing they both have, particularly Calvin Phillips. And it's kind of like, it, it's not necessarily, it's not the old school defensive midfielder that is essentially an extra member of your back line, although that is available to them when they are playing together. But it's that range of passing and that kind of quarterback role. So it's a basis for attack rather than necessarily a basis for protecting your defensive line. And I think the the way England play within that formation is maybe more important than the formation itself. So how much license do the fullbacks have to get forward, for example? How much license does Phillips or Rice have to get forward to support the attack? So it's the mentality within the formation rather than necessarily the formation itself. But I think you you wouldn't necessarily, and I don't think when we get to a tournament situation there'll be any question that this is what Gareth Southgate goes into a game with. He will play the pragmatic football that has seen success and is the basis for any team that has won the Euros or the World Cup. It is usually a pragmatic team that sees victory or gets to the latter stages. So there's no way Southgate's going to abandon that. But it is interesting to see something else happening and it's interesting to see Mason Mount, Foden, Grealish all on the pitch together, which we wouldn't normally get in an England lineup. I think when you look at the team and you look ahead towards the World Cup, I, I, I do take Jim's point, this idea that Phillips and Bryce, because they are maybe more defensively minded or they are more defensively minded than, than other players, that means that they're not progressive in the way that they move the ball. I thought they were outstanding in the Euros. I thought Raheem Sterling was England's best individual player, but the best partnership in that team was, was Rice and Phillips. And when you look at the big games that Southgate has played across the last 12 months, the Euros, the the bigger qualifiers in World Cup um, qualification, Poland and the 200, games he has reverted to type and I do honestly think that if England fans are looking at this ahead of Qatar next year and expecting this scramble and selection dilemma and fantasy football and who's going to be playing here there and everywhere I think that nine probably ten of those starting 11 places are already nailed down um, and I think the only one that's still up for grabs is is probably wide either side of Harry Kane because Raheem Sterling is, is out of form a little bit for Man City he's not playing as much as, uh, as he'd like to but that was exactly the case before Euro 2020 Southgate continued to pick him and he was England's best player of the tournament so mm. I think there is only one spot I think Phillips and Rice are nailed on Mount, Sterling and Kane and then probably Walker 
Stones, Maguire, Shaw and Jordan Pickford in goal. I, th- I think there's one spot left, maybe two, uh, for a pretty string of uh, talented players to fight for. That's uh, that's my two cents on it. But as the old saying goes, it's a, it's a wonderful problem for, for Southgate to have. Um, Ian, looking at a potential problem area for England, and uh, I never thought I'd really be saying this, and that's Harry Kane. No Premier League goal for him so far this season. He did score for England in the previous window, um, but no goal last night. He was taken off for Tammy Abraham, who, as we know, is in red-hot form over in Italy for Jose Mourinho's AS Roma. We don't expect Kane's goals to dry up. We don't expect him to fall off the horse, but... There's been a difficult, controversial summer for him. Would he stay at Tottenham? Would he go to Manchester City? He stayed at Tottenham. We don't know how long that's for, whether it's a a marriage of convenience or he genuinely is committed to, to Tottenham moving forward. But he doesn't seem himself. He doesn't seem his confident self. There's chances last night that the Kane of 12 months ago would have taken, would have buried. There does seem to be something nagging away at him. And despite the fact that buried inside him is is still the real Harry Kane, at the moment we're just seeing a shadow of him. Yeah, he's he's lacking confidence, isn't he? And you just look at the chances that he, he had last night, and you're know, spooning him into the stand, or he's clearly offside, and then begging for the ball to to be, you know, it's desperation. I think to score a goal, probably overthinking it, trying a bit too hard, and I don't know, it just. It's not clicking for him, <laughs> and uh, I, I was watching. I, I watched the same highlights again uh, a couple of times of, of the England match, and and it's just it's just confidence. I think if he if he got a couple of goals in a match, the next match he would be a different player. And and I think as you say, there's there's a lot going on in the background. And I was reading something about you know now that um, uh, the, the Saudis are wanting to build Newcastle around him and all this kind of stuff. And it's like it's it, which is paper talk. It's utter rubbish, but it's not helpful to him. Um, um, to, to um, you know, in his mindset, is it when when you, you're being rumoured to be moving here and moving there? Probably it's all news to him as well. Um, and I don't know. There's a lot of focus on him, a lot of expectation. Um, this I don't think this whole Man City chat and all that from from the the summer has has done him any good because he obviously had the Euros and then went off to America in in hiding for a few weeks and then came back late to training and it's not really clicked for him at, at Tottenham this season and there's more focus and pressure and that moves into England and he just needs to get himself sorted out long term where he's going to be whether that's Man City or otherwise or whether he's staying at Tottenham forever or or what it just needs I think there's too much speculation that's probably rumbling away in the background and you know just because it's not the transfer window doesn't mean that there's you know rumours and chats going on with people it just seems to be not himself at the minute for whatever reason uh, and looking quickly at Scotland, Jim, before we take a break, massive result for them last night, 1-0 away at the Faroes. Obviously, they won in midweek, uh, sorry, at the weekend against Israel to keep World Cup qualification on track. And just looking at their table, their group situation, Denmark have already qualified as group winners. Eight wins from eight, really impressive stuff from them. Scotland have got two games in the November window, Moldova and then Denmark. They only need one win to get themselves into the playoffs. No World Cup since France 1998. They obviously broke the tournament duck by getting to the Euros this summer. Are they going to do it? Has Steve Clark's uh, team done enough to, to get themselves into the playoffs? Cautiously, yes. I think the message after the Israel game was don't get overexcited. But I think if you're Scottish, you can start to get a little bit excited now. I don't fancy <laughs> getting anything. Don't fancy them getting anything from Denmark, but a win against Moldova is certainly possible. And if they get there, I mean, it's easy to look at a game like the Faroe Islands and go, ah, oh, one 0 That's not that impressive. But the Faroe Islands are 
or can be a challenging team to break down. Denmark themselves struggled against them earlier in the, in the qualifying. So it's not a bad result by any stretch of the imagination. And I think if Scotland gets the World Cup, that is an absolutely huge achievement in itself. They're still going to have to play the qualifier via the group stages, so they won't qualify automatically. But it's a massive achievement. And you just look at that Scotland lineup, and it is lacking in... I won't say lacking in quality, but lacking in kind of household names. You've got players like Tierney and Robertson, who obviously play for Arsenal and Liverpool, and Gilmore, who's showing promise on loan from Chelsea and stuff. But other than that, there's not a great deal in that team. So for them to get anywhere near the World Cup is a huge achievement. So Steve Clark's done a fantastic job at Scotland, and I think it would be great to see him at the World Cup. Although I don't fancy Scottish skin under the... Qatar sun, particularly. <laughs> 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 I think they might need some extra sun cream packing. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. Uh, safe travel advice from uh, from Jim there. If Scotland do make it to the World Cup, right, we're going to take a quick break here on the Football Social Daily. That's it for the international window because after the break, we are turning our attention to the Premier League. Injury news from Manchester United. Raphael Varane and Harry Maguire both set to miss out against Leicester this weekend. We're going to be talking about that situation and also Newcastle. Steve Bruce and who could potentially be taking over from him and the other 19 Premier League teams have had their say on the Newcastle buyout. And, as you might have guessed, they are not happy. Right, all that's come in just a few seconds. Football Social Daily. Subscribe to the podcast now so you never miss an episode. Social Daily. Find more great sport at sport-social.co.uk. Hello and welcome back to the Football Social Daily. Just a quick reminder, if you're a brand new listener to the podcast or indeed if you are a regular fan, if you click subscribe on this episode, you can get a brand new podcast every single day. We are your only daily Premier League podcast. So, don't forget to check us out. Right, before the break, it was the international window. Now we're moving across to the Premier League. Manchester United, Ian, we're going to go to you first on this one. Man United have confirmed Rafael Varane will be out for three weeks with an injury picked up on international duty with France. Harry Maguire is also set to miss out this weekend as they get back in action against Leicester. So that could put us in a position where Ole Gunnar Solskjaer has to choose between Eric Bailly, Victor Lindelof and, God forbid, Phil Jones. Yes, Phil Jones could be back in action starting a game for Manchester United. That is how dire the situation is. Obviously, the Leicester game is the the focus this weekend. Both of them are more than likely going to be missing this weekend. How does Solskjaer play this? Um, I'm really not sure. I mean, I feel sorry for Phil Jones. You know, if, I mean, if he's if he's listening to this, hi Phil. I mean, I'm sure he's got lots to offer the side. I'm, I'm, I'm you know, <laughs> um. Well, I don't know. It's not it's not in my bag. I'm sure Leicester fans will be delighted, uh, firstly, as well, with this news. Um, yeah, Varane's done all right. Uh, you know, being out for a few weeks, injuries are going to happen in football. You know, uh, I'm sure that there must be a backup plan. It's not ideal because, of course, um, Man United, if they've had a, a problem area, defence has, has, has probably been their uh, shaky part. But I don't know. I mean, I'm, I see, I really don't know beyond the, the players that you've mentioned, who else they've got coming through. In 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 defence, 
you know, there was a time Man United had, uh, you know, an embarrassment of riches in terms of like youngsters coming through, but we don't seem to be breeding defenders like we used to do in, in, in the youth ranks either, do we? So it's going to be a shaky time, but, you know, look, Man United have got a good, a good team nonetheless, you know, and uh, the, the other players are just going to have to step up and, uh, and, and try and protect the, the defenders, whoever, whoever he, he, he calls in. Um, you know, Leicester is um, obviously a big game, an important game for Man United, but it's not it's not the biggest game, dare I say, of the season. Um, so I'm sure that they'll they'll be all right. And I think the thing that goes in Man United's favour is that they've got firepower up front, or certainly have had, um, or certainly got the potential to have firepower up front. So, you know, one of those kind of approaches, uh, maybe the Marcelo Bielsa approach of score more than you let in, uh, might be the way you have to uh, you have to play it. <laughs> Looking at United's situation, Jim, going into the international break, it's not massively positive in terms of results. Just two wins in the last six before the break. Only one of them, uh, apologies, coming against West Ham in the Premier League. Lost in the Champions League to Young Boys, then they beat BJ Real. It's, it is all very patchy. There's only one win, that, that West Ham game. They got knocked out of the League Cup by West Ham then. It's not particularly stable or particularly steady. And you lose your two starting centre-backs ahead of what's a massive run. Just looking at after the Leicester game, Atalanta at home in the Champions League, Liverpool at home in the Premier League, Spurs away, Atalanta again, and then Man City at the start of November. Given the fact that Varane and potentially Maguire are going to miss at least a few of those games, this is a rocky period for United and they're not in the best of form. No, and it's going to be a real test of Solskjaer to see what he can do. I've been quite critical of Solskjaer this season. I think the team he has, the players he has at his disposal, the Manchester United performances have been four, have been poor and the wins they have got, the results they have got, have been more to do with luck or moments of brilliance than they have been in terms of game plan or tactical experience or, or ability. And you can't rely on those moments of brilliance forever. And Ian's right. I mean, they might need to outscore the opposition. That might be the only thing they can do. And you've got Ronaldo in red-hot form for Portugal. I think he scored another hat-trick, didn't he, last night? So outscoring the opposition is always an option. But in terms of what Solskjaer does, surely he now has to show his ability as a coach, his ability as a manager to get through this scenario. I don't think Lindelof and Bay are actually that bad a pairing. They've not had the greatest form at Manchester United, but Manchester United as a team haven't been particularly good over the last five, six years. So maybe it's unfair to level all the criticism at them. But if they aren't in form, how does Solskjaer manage that? Does he play a more defensive midfield system? Does he even potentially look at moving Luke Shaw into the middle and playing a kind of five at the back formation to give him that little bit extra defensive stability the answer is he won't he'll do exactly what he does every game he'll pick the 4-4-2 or 4-3-3 formation that he does every single game he'll instruct his players to go out and try their best and that'll kind of be the end of it and that'll be it but I think if it was a different manager in that situation he'd be looking at the tools at his disposal and he'd be adjusting accordingly and that's where Manchester United fall down at the moment they don't have a manager that has the ability I don't think to do that the only other thing that um, um, maybe he could do that he, he has in the past played three at the back 
and and had Luke Shaw sort of um, on, on a sort of freer role like it like he um, he did last year. So that's that's one option. And the, the, I was saying they don't have an embarrassment of riches in terms of uh, youth coming through. I've, I've just done a, a quick check and um, I, I, I knew that there was I'd seen something about a, a, an exciting Man United defender and he was and he went to um, Derby County last year. Um, Ted and Mengi is um, playing back in the under 23s at Man United and is sort of um, getting a few tongues wagging I think in the, the under 23 league so if he is going to blood anybody new uh, then then it's probably going to be him um, but I don't I, I can't see him I can't see him doing it but you know it, maybe he might get a bench position or something I don't know I mean the, the, the benefit from Manchester United have is Leicester City have been in poor form as well they've been really unimpressive so far this season so it's not the Leicester City they would have been facing last season it's not like the kind of like up and coming Leicester City that we've seen recently it's the Leicester City that are on the on the flats if not on the down so you'd still fancy Manchester United to get a result again with the attacking talent they have they should be able to beat most teams in the Premier League yeah, I agree with with Jim. This idea of it being a test of uh, of Solskjaer's coaching capability because that is one thing that he does consistently come come up short on because he is quite inflexible and he does just kind of seem to have this message of this is the plan, go out and execute it. And if you don't, or there's an issue <clears throat> on the pitch or the opposition react to it, well then that's your responsibility. I've done my bit by sending you out. But big big crunch run of games coming up for Manchester United. And um, we're going to switch across to Newcastle because let's face it, it wouldn't be a podcast or a conversation about the Premier League at the moment if we didn't talk about Newcastle uh, and management Ian Steve Bruce we think obviously the situation is constantly evolving by tomorrow something else ridiculous could have happened um, but we do think as it stands that he is going to still be in place this weekend for the game against Tottenham that's going to be his thousandth game um, as a professional manager in the Premier League which will be a big big milestone for him even if it is to be his last game as Newcastle boss so I want to look at some of the names that are emerging as his replacement because I think everyone has kind of made their peace with the fact that Bruce is going to be removed whether it's immediate whether it's a little bit further down the road and Brendan Rodgers is the current favourite as it stands, 7-4, to four, and then it stretches out a little bit. We've got Frank Lampard, Lucien Favre, Roberto Martinez and, and Steven Gerrard are the next names down the list. Given the fact that Rodgers is the favourite as it stands, he's already tied to a Premier League club, he's already tied to them on a fairly solid and, and long-term contract. Ian, does that hint to you that maybe Bruce's position is not going to be as immediately decided as it's been predicted uh, in, in the last few days? No, I don't. I don't think they're going to get rid of him this week or probably this month. You know, I, I think that they've got a lot of other stuff to deal with at Newcastle as well. Um, they don't want to. What you don't want to do is, I can't see the point of bringing in um, a worldy manager, right? Whoever it is, it can be any name that you you pluck out of the air, and they've still got the same squad, right? They can't do anything until January. They can't change it at all and even then they're going to have to be fairly careful with how they tread because they can't go all guns blazing and spending all of their 400 billion in the same transfer window and and that's the other thing this this you know these numbers being banded around that's kind of the wealth of the entire nation right that the entire <laughs> nation's wealth of Saudi Arabia is not going to be invested in in a building just outside the Chinatown area of, of Newcastle right they haven't even invested the most money in in it, of of all the other things they've invested in, you know the the public investment fund of, of Saudi Arabia, they they invested two billion in Uber, 
and they've, they've invested 300 million in Newcastle United so far, right? So, and you're not seeing Mbappe driving an Uber, exactly. Precisely, right? So, so they, you know, I don't think that people have they've seen the wealth fund, but I think that actually the, I mean, don't get me wrong, they're very well off, right? But the 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 pockets are not as deep as probably a lot of people think they are. This money has to be invested across the whole world, right? They're, they're, they're investing in a lot of stuff. Newcastle United is not, that pot of money is not all for them. I think their wealth, I read somewhere, and I forget where it was, that, that their, their wealth is probably more in line with that of Chelsea or saw somebody like that, you know? So they're still a very well-off club with billions, but not all of the billions that you, you read is, is, is for the football. That said, that's still going to get them quite away um, in football, and they can't spend it all at once because they'll get done by financial fair play. They're not selling enough, uh, enough um, Newcastle shirts um, on the streets of Saudi Arabia just yet to, uh, to really balance out the, the you know, balance sheet. I don't know who's going to become manager, and I think it's going to have to be a point where they can make a change. Is January the time to do it? I don't know. I think a lot depends on how it goes over the next few weeks. And I think if the natives are getting restless, if Newcastle get a bit of a boost and they start winning a few matches and get themselves out of the relegation zone and stuff, then I can see Bruce kind of maybe limping on to the, you know, certainly, uh, well, if they don't change him by January, he's going to have to stay there to the end of the season, isn't he? I think, because it's not going to make any I, I difference. Think, I, think, I think you're right, Ian. I, I don't think there's necessarily... There's, you're, you're right on two fronts. Firstly, there's an assumption that Newcastle's new owners do want to invest heavily in a playing squad, and there is no indication that that's necessarily the case. Sometimes owners of football clubs who have billions of pounds don't want to necessarily plough billions of pounds into that football club. It might be just a case of running it better than it has been run so there will be change but it might mm. not be your Mbappes and your Neymars coming in it might be your kind of mid-tier players so you, oh, I, don't know, I can't, can't think of an example of who they could bring in but you know what I mean it's, it might not be that superstar mm. straight away but also I think that maybe a cautious approach is right here in terms of appointing a new manager because we're making the assumption that Steve Bruce is going to get the sack and he'll get replaced and he made that assumption he said in an interview that he thought he was going to get the sack but bringing in a new manager at this stage is dangerous not necessarily because the results will suffer because the results can't get any worse for Newcastle United this season because they've been absolutely awful but because if you bring in a new manager as Ian rightly points out they've got the same squad to deal with they've got the same players that are going to be taken to the pitch and it takes a time for a manager to have an impact whether it's with new players or whether it's with existing players but it doesn't take as long for an atmosphere around a football club to change and if a new manager got six games in to his tenure without turning results around with continual negative results then potentially that ruins the tenure of that manager. People are calling from his head by the time he gets to January. So you've bought in your expensive Brendan Rodgers, for example, who is your long-term plan, but two months in, and he's already spent. He's already burnt out because his the start of his career as Newcastle manager hasn't got off to a good start. So why not bring in the new manager with the new signings? Give him three weeks, maybe, before the January transfer window so he's got a good look at his players, he can assess his squad... And then you hit in January, you get your new manager, you get your new players, you turn over a kind of fresh page almost. Make the plans now. 
decide what you want to do now as a football club, but don't necessarily make that change. Because I think, I mean, Steve Bruce is a man, he's a proud man. He's spoken of his love for the football club. He is aware that right now he is playing almost a caretaker role. But I think he's probably happy to do that. So don't upset the apple cart. Wait until you get that opportunity to change several things in January and do it all together and give your manager, your new manager, the best chance of a good start at the football club. I think as well with Newcastle, there's been such a bad feeling around the whole place that might lift now. And maybe it's worth seeing what Steve Bruce can do with, you know, uh, with decent tools. I mean, the, the, the other thing as well with Newcastle is that the, the whole place needs sorting out. Like the, the stadium is not in a great shape, right? It's not, it's, it's, it's sort of falling down in, in, in certain parts. It's, it's, not, it's not the nicest stadium in the Premier League. It's not even the nicest stadium in the Northeast, you know, and it needs a lot of work for like the corporate point of view, um, all that kind of thing that they're going to have to expand because that's where the money is, unfortunately. Uh, you know, that's where the cash is, corporate stuff. And for, you know, for fans, <laughs> fortunate news, that's the reality. Their corporate facilities, I've been to them, and it's not great. It's not great. And that's something else that they need to sort out. They need to sort the stadium out. They need to sort out their whole um, image and how they present themselves to, to fans, to sponsors, to everyone. And, and the training ground isn't great. I, I think it was on the sports social um, uh, feed, the, the, the Newcastle ice bath, which was like a paddling pool that was inflated out the back of it. <laughs> you know, it's uh, this kind of stuff. They are way behind because Mike Ashley hasn't invested anything in it. And, uh, you know, it, and it, just just go to your local house of Fraser, see how disappointing that is in terms of shops, and then go to a better shop and you'll see exactly what's happened at Newcastle United. That is, that's something for you to do this weekend. I mean, that's the other point, isn't it? It's like, what actually is going to attract people or players to come to Newcastle United at the moment? Because, I mean, with the best win in the world, and I, I say this knowing it's going to get Newcastle fans upset... They don't have any history in terms of a club. But they, they, like in terms of a club, where is their success? They haven't got. They haven't won a Premier League title. They haven't. I can't remember the last time they won an FA Cup. So if you're a player coming from a European nation who isn't, they don't, they don't know about the passionate Newcastle fans and the whole sleeping giant narrative. All they know is what that team have won, and it is very little. So they're going to come to. Newcastle United have a look around they'll be tempted by the paycheck they'll look around St James's Park which is an impressive old square stadium as football fans we absolutely love it but it hasn't got the glitz and glamour of a shiny like you say you know, like a stadium of light or an Etihad Stadium or even the Olympic Park so it hasn't got that they go to the training ground and they see a load of people sitting in wheelie bins <laughs> in like ice baths well, yeah, you might not be in the ice meet... buff yeah and then they go and meet Steve Bruce. Oh. <laughs> it's like, what element of that makes Newcastle United an attractive destination to play football other than the paycheck? Yeah, this this is uh, it is it is all um, valid stuff. Um, to be quite honest, I mean they they, they built the massive stand. You know, so they've got oh, got a massive stand you can see for miles, and we've got a chicken <laughs> cottage over the road. That's it. Um, you know, stadium of light. Is that not enough? Well, it is. Uh, you know, <laughs> you've got you've got according according to Jim, you've got Mbappe driving an Uber around town. <laughs> I didn't say it was driving it around Newcastle. <laughs> <laughs> um, what well, what I would say, I'd, I'd make two points on the back of this. Number one. Jim, if I was you, don't leave your lunchbox around in front of Marley after that comment about Newcastle. <laughs> I'd tread very, very carefully in the office. And number two, 
I would have thought if anybody could get their hands on a few more paddling pools, it'd be the owner of Sports Direct. If you've ever been into <laughs> Sports Direct, they've got that crap everywhere. I, I'm, I'm absolutely amazed that, that Mike Ashley couldn't get a bit of a, a bit of a knockoff deal on that. Um, we're going to throw it across the other story that's concerning Newcastle uh, overnight, Jim, and that is the rest of the Premier League. The other 19 clubs have demanded an emergency meeting with the Premier League. The official statement from uh, the other clubs says they are concerned about the Newcastle United takeover. They are united in their opposition and they are worried about the damage it could do to the Premier League as a brand. Now, Newcastle fans are probably going to frame this as sour grapes and that they're looking to upset the situation with with the buyout and the fact that Newcastle are going to probably emerge as, as a power in English football in the next couple of years. Do they have a point are they just doing this for selfish reasons? Is there a potential that the Premier League could get a bit of a, a negative impact because of the worrying and concerning news surrounding uh, the Saudi Arabian state and, and PIF? It's a difficult one, isn't it? Because it does look like sour grapes from the outside looking in. And depending how you frame that story, it could easily be seen that way. In terms of the reputation of the Premier League, and whether the Saudis' ownership of a team within it can damage that reputation. I think that's probably nonsense. I don't think... I mean, the whole kind of aspect of sports washing is that the negatives that an ownership or a country brings in are kind of forgotten about, and I think that is in general the case, particularly when you bear in mind that the countries that the Premier League want to appeal to aren't countries who have fantastic human rights records in themselves. They're looking at the Middle Eastern audiences. They're looking at the Chinese audiences. So I'm not sure that is too much of a concern. I think the Premier League is right to be concerned and investigate properly Newcastle United's new ownership in terms of their past history and those human rights issues. You've got Amnesty International who are calling about that. They want meetings with the Premier League and there are organisation who deserve huge credibility. So if they they have concerns about it, those concerns are perfectly right. But if this meeting and if the concerns in the Premier League are about competitiveness, that is sour grapes. And that is laughable to a certain extent. And I think someone said they were concerned about, or the Premier League teams were concerned about the... Um, the, the, the competitiveness or the, the increased competitiveness for the European places. Isn't that what we want? Don't we want the Premier League to be as competitive as possible when we want different teams challenging for those European places? So it, there's no divine right for the big four or the top six or wherever it is to be qualifying for Europe every season. And it's nice to see a Leicester City or a West Ham kind of disrupting that top six and challenging. So I don't think any Premier League team can have a problem with that being an aspect of it. That is part of the competition. And you know what? We've seen huge investment for most teams that are in the top half of the table over the last 10 years of Premier League football. It's just that amount of investment creeps up and up and up. And unfortunately, we're in a situation where if you want to continue playing the game, if you want to have a seat at the table you need to increase your investment and you need to pay more and more but it's the natural way of things it's just the way the game's going so for a team like Manchester United or a team like Manchester City to pick two poignant examples to kind of throw their toys out the pram and go that's not fair this is our competition we want to win it I think it is 
purely bitterness. Man United and Spurs are apparently the two that are the most um, annoyed by by this whole thing, from what I'm reading here. Um, and and yeah, as you say, it's all about them that they're annoyed at the increased competition for the Champions League places in future. This just really shows that they've learned nothing from the whole. <laughs> Super League thing, is it? And the fact that they think that the mm. the top four positions are theirs now, and it's you know, which is the, particularly laughable when it's Tottenham, isn't it? Well, yeah, I was going <laughs> to say Tottenham need to chill out. Uh, but, uh, yes, you want to get a, get a trophy cabinet first. You don't let alone worrying about uh, Champions League places. But um, it, it, you know, and I think it is a disrespect if that is how they think. And apparently Everton, are the other one. Um, that's how they think. It's it's disrespectful to the rest of the league as well, isn't it, really? We all know that every team can beat each other in the Premier League and there is no divine right. And you can you can find yourself uh, very quickly further down that table if, if you don't win the matches, which is what it ultimately comes down to. Um, obviously, Newcastle uh, are, are a way off uh, uh, troubling anybody in, in the Champions League just yet. But, you know, it, it's it, win your games. Win your games and you get the Champions League places. It is simple. You can't budget for living in the Champions League because um, Leeds United uh, is, a, is a very good example of what happens when you do that and you don't qualify. And that's, that's, that was the top and the bottom of the, of the whole thing. Was uh, was that, and of course, spending ridiculous amounts of money on Seth Johnson. Um, so yeah, if you can avoid those two things, you'll be all right. Yeah, I agree. And just the hypocrisy. We're less than six months on from the European Super League when the top four or the top six demonstrated that they didn't care about the rest of the Premier League. And now they're demanding a meeting for the top four, top six to pretend that they do care about Norwich and Burnley and the rest of them. You know, it's just it's just absolute hypocrisy. But unfortunately, that is a big thing in Premier League football at the minute. Before we wrap up, just a quick bit of fun before we go. Ian, probably Steve Bruce is not going to be the manager of Newcastle next season. We don't know when he will be sacked or how or what the situation surrounding it is. So before we go, give us your pick for when you think Steve Bruce will go and who is going to replace him. Ah, uh, right. So I think he'll go, if they're going to get rid of him, they say shoot turkeys at Christmas. Uh, so I reckon he'll be yeah over the <laughs> over the festive period. I know. Hold on. I know. I know things are bad in terms of deliveries. I'm not eating Steve Bruce at Christmas. Okay. Yeah, I know. <laughs> and I think perhaps that was a, a wrong turn of phrase, considering the whole Amnesty International concerns. But, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but and who'll replace him? Well, needs to be probably a Newcastle legend. They'll stick Alan Shearer in as a curveball. Wow. Uh, Jim, so Ian's going for turkeys slash Steve Bruce is being stuffed at Christmas and Alan Shearer under the tree on on December 25th. What's your pick? I'm going to contradict what I said a moment ago because um, despite the fact I think Steve Bruce may or potentially should remain at the club until they can make wholesale changes, I don't think that'll be the case. I think he'll be gone in the next seven days. And I 100% expect Newcastle to get this horribly wrong and appoint Frank Lampard as their new manager, which will be an absolute disaster for them. Other than that, if I was Newcastle, I'd be looking at Roberto Martinez, potentially. I think he's probably the right kind of level from where they're at. They're not going to go and get a Pep Guardiola or a Zinazan Zidane straight off the bat. So I think the likes of Roberto Martinez, who feels like his time at Belgium is coming to an end, a natural conclusion, I think he'd probably be a good shout. But it will be Fat Frank who gets the uh, job at Newcastle. 
Uh, I'm going to kind of go a little bit in between. I'm going to give it a couple of weeks. Start of December, I think they'll get rid of him once they're bedded in. But I'm going for another former England international. I'm going for Steven Gerrard to take over from him instead of Frank Lampard. Mm. I think Frank Lampard's a good shout, but my pick is uh, Steven Gerrard. Whichever way it goes, however it goes down, uh, except for Steve Bruce, is going to be a hell of a roller coaster ride. Right, Ian, Jim, we're going to call it there for Wednesday's edition of the Football Social Daily. Thanks so much. Nice one. Thank you great stuff as always and as always we are here every single day as your daily dose of all things Premier League don't forget to hit subscribe on this episode and you can get a brand new podcast as soon as it is ready speak to you again very very soon Football Social Daily subscribe to the podcast now so you never miss an episode